but until he was invited into their home and they communed with him in a in a real way, broke the bread, and they saw him. And so I, I think a point of reflection for us is, you know, how much of our spiritual life is dependent upon someone else's revelation and how much is our own spiritual world shaped by our own communion with the living God. And the only way that that's possible is if Jesus rose from the dead, ascended, sent the Spirit as a down payment of the coming resurrection and the consummation uh, where we will see him face to face. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray, and I'm here with Drew Stedman. And this podcast is actually releasing the day after Easter, but we wanted to take a moment here. We, we just looked back and uh, couldn't remember if it was last year or the year before, but we did an episode on Good Friday, on Black Saturday, and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, a couple of years ago. Uh, but wanted to look today at the, the significance of the resurrection, which can't be overstated. We could do an episode a week on the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection from the dead. But even though we're past Easter, uh, it's still worth reflecting on because every day is a celebration of the resurrection in the life of the follower of Jesus. And so Drew and I are just going to riff a little bit here from some of our studies and just life in God and from pastoral ministry, and, and specifically as it intersects with this podcast, as we look at the belief systems that are shaping us, and we've talked, talked at length about the comparing and contrasting between the secular humanism that we see as a, a dominant belief system in the West and the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, which has also been a dominant belief system uh, in the West that's given shape and the contours of, of America in particular over the past several centuries. Uh, but they are dramatically different belief systems. One of the implications that we've drawn from that is this emphasis on naturalism on the one hand and then the supernatural on the other and of course, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead being a, a striking supernatural claim and yet possessing a rich uh, historical legacy and, uh, and carries with it tremendous implications. And so want to take a few minutes here and talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the implications for our lives. So uh, Drew, what would you have on your mind as we start off here? Let me start with this concept, is that the Christian faith is entirely dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There would be no Christian faith apart from it. And, and I want to even, in a little bit later in the episode, break down some of, of how that's played out historically and what I mean by that. But um, to guide our time today, uh, let, let's look at three different things together. First, what are we claiming Jesus actually did? Second, what are the ramifications for how we understand our faith as a result? And then third, what does that mean for how we live now? So those three, those three aspects in light of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so we'll start off with the first one, which is what are we claiming actually happened? And I think this is a, a big deal, and I'm actually going to start with prior to the resurrection, the Christian faith teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. And this was affirmed at the Council of Chalcedon, and I think it's year 451 or some, somewhere thereabouts. And it had been hotly debated, you know, is Jesus a man who achieved a God awareness or even became God at some point in his life? Is he God where he just appeared to be a man? 
is he both man and God, but in two different persons, and somehow they're in the same body? Like, there's there's a lot of questions, and each of those represent different heretical viewpoints that were later condemned by the church. But the, the Christian teaching is that, no, Jesus is fully man, just like I am fully a person, a human person, but he's also fully God. And those two are joined together in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for that union is the hypostatic union, and that is the joining of the two natures of Jesus in one person. Now, where that becomes a really big deal, if that sounds a little bit too out there, where that becomes a really big deal is the early church's teaching that what God has not assumed, he does not save. And what is being affirmed with that is that Jesus took on humanity in every aspect of humanity so that in his body he might save every aspect of humanity. Every part of us is then capable of being a site of salvation and restoration because of the work of Jesus. So then what else is affirmed in Scripture, and this gets into that episode you referenced, Mick, from two years ago, is we talked a lot more about Good Friday and atonement, and what that, what that means is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and even as is, is referenced in the New Testament, according to the Scriptures. And so exactly what that atonement looks like and the why behind the what is debated theologically, and we've shared some of our thoughts on that in the past. However, the, the upshot of all this is that the death of Jesus on the cross was not an accident, but was prophesied and was the plan of God. So in other words, Jesus, God-man, came to earth, lived a, a life in a human body, and he then died on a cross for the sake of our sins according to the will of God. It was not an accident. Uh, it, it was not a surprise. And even in recent years, I've heard some people talk, you know, maybe question this concept of atonement. And you might have come across this where people have referenced it as some type of, uh, you know, divine child abuse where the father is taking out his wrath on the son for the sake of someone else and just challenging the morality of that. You know, I think that's a terrible mistake in theology because what that's doing is that's putting distance between the Father and the Son without the recognition that God is one, that Jesus is God. Jesus is not a man who was partially God. Jesus is not a man who was God-conscious, but Jesus is Israel's God in the flesh coming down. And so we're not talking about a mean father and a nice son and the two of them having a tussle over our salvation. That's not what's happening at the cross. Instead, what we're talking about is a just God who shows mercy by assuming the very punishment that his own justice would decree, and in doing so, atoning us. And that's what's happening on Good Friday. And so that is the lead up then to the resurrection. And what I started with, I I think is, is worth saying again, if Jesus had not bodily risen from the dead, there would be no Christianity. His name would not have been known in history. There would not have been the the future movement of the church. Everything is predicated upon the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered death. And so in other words, his resurrection was the vindication of God. And if you think of all that Jesus stood for, what his life meant, his miracles, his teaching, What happened then as he died, when he rose again, that was the vindication from God over the ways of Jesus and up and against the ways of this world, demonstrating his power and his authority. And so, you know, you just picture if you're one of the disciples of Jesus, suddenly you see him in bodily form. Instantly, that validates who he is and what he taught, you know, and and we see in scripture, they they were already confessing him as Messiah. He had already established a religious movement, but it would have died if he had stayed dead. It was his resurrection is what sparked it and ultimately 
allows us to see the fullness of the atonement that he worked on the cross. It allows us to make sense of his life and of his ministry, and as we'll see later, is what allowed the church to even come to recognize the identity of the God that they served. Yeah, those are great points. I've been thinking a lot recently about the concept of embodiment, you know, going all the way back to Greek thought and Gnosticism and how matter is the locus of evil and the spirit is trapped in these physical bodies awaiting their flight from the body so that they can be returned to a state of perfection and, and moral goodness and and how the early church had to really combat this. And, and if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, the fact that God creates a physical earth and pronounces that this is good, this is good, this is good, creates Adam and Eve and stands back and, and says, this is very good, that the physical created world was God's intention, God's design. There was a pronouncement of goodness over it, that human telos, the highest calling, the highest purpose for being human involves being in a physical body, in a created uh, world. It's not about escaping the physical body to this kind of disembodied spiritual state. And so what's lost at the fall in Genesis 3 is now this unfolding process of redemption, not to do away with the physical creation, but actually to restore it. And you see those bookends in Genesis 1 and 2, and then Revelation 21 and 22, the restoration of all things on a physical earth with physical embodied people. And so Jesus is called the first fruits to rise from the dead, and he is the, the link, he's the connection point between um, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, and his incarnation, his embodiment, God becoming flesh, a member of the triune Godhead, coming flesh, is the beginning of the restoration of that of that union between heaven and earth that was lost uh, in Genesis 3, that's going to be restored at the end of time, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when as the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth and the two are one again the coming together of the Godhead in, or I should say, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, was a, a physical symbol of that of that coming reality. And so Gnostic thinkers would have celebrated the death of Jesus as a, a culmination of his life and the perfection of his life now coming to its its apex in his death so that his spirit could escape the body. They would have thought this was a good thing that he shed the mortal flesh. And so the pronouncement that he rose bodily from the dead and then ascended bodily to heaven and will return bodily is such a countercultural at that time pronouncement. And But is right, like you said, Drew, it's just right at the heart of the Christian faith. In fact, like you said, the, the Christian faith comes to nothing. His his pronouncements about who he is, because he predicted his own death and resurrection, come to nothing. He's just another miracle worker. I mean, Elisha did the majority of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus is another miracle-working prophet who made audacious claims about being one with God if he doesn't rise from the dead. But the fact that he rises from the dead forms this fulcrum, this hinge point in history that ties the biblical narrative together that affirms and authenticates his message and becomes the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. He is the hope of the resurrection from the dead that the original creational intent will one day again be restored. So just building on, on those ideas, Mick, 
there is an, an early church father who is more in the Greek tradition, Maximus the Confessor, and he had this this theory that ultimately the incarnation would have happened even had there been no sin. So going to what you just talked about in the garden, that, that was always God's intention was to inhabit his creation in fullness. It's just what sin did is it turned that into a rescue mission. And I don't know that I would fully follow Maximus on that in its entirety, but I think it just underscores that what we see demonstrated and ultimately perfected in the life of Jesus of God joined with his creation, where there is no more distance, but it's in body, it's in fullness, it's actually in the creation, not just the rational part of our mean that the Gnostics or even Greek philosophers would have affirmed as good, but the totality of who we are being joined together with God. And, and that's what it points to in our future. And so the resurrection is a, is a giant exclamation mark on that. And I think of John's gospel where it starts off, at, you know, the beginning, John 1, looking at in the beginning. So it's this creation narrative. And if you take Genesis 1 through 3, it is a garden story. And Adam and Eve are put in the garden as gardeners, was their intention to steward God's creation. And we end with them back out in the wilderness. John begins in the wilderness. You know, that's where John the Baptist ministry takes place. And it's almost like a protest in some way against the corruption of the city. And sometimes the, the wilderness stories in Scripture, that's what's being articulated, is the cities have turned into places of corruption. And you certainly see that in Genesis with Nimrod building a city with a foundation upon wickedness um, and then culminating in the Babel story. But over time, Jerusalem becomes that same type of place where Babylon and Jerusalem are shown to have the same sin. And, and that leads us then to this wilderness ministry of John the Baptist or even Jesus being in the wilderness. But if you pay attention to the setting in John's gospel, in the resurrection, Jesus is buried in a garden tomb. And then his first revelation, the first person to see his resurrected body was Mary, which I think is very interesting that in a society where women were not even allowed to give testimony, that the first person to give testimony to the resurrection of Christ was a woman. And you see Mary, and she sees Jesus as a gardener. And that's this powerful echo then of the reclamation of creation and the fullness of God's intention. And so you see all this full circle taking place. And what's being communicated to us in, in the resurrection is the victory of God. But it's an unusual victory. And I think you see this most clearly in the book of Revelation, where John is, is sitting before the throne, and it's the Lion of Judah is revealed to be the slain lamb. And you keep going in Revelation, it's the army of martyrs that conquers. It's the dead. It's those who have gone through the cross then experience the resurrection. And meanwhile, you have these powerful empires and in Revelation, it's a lot of that same imagery that you're going to find in the book of Daniel, where you see these beasts, you know, representative of the culmination of human power and authority and strength and all the things the world says. And, and ultimately, the beast is overthrown, Babylon is fallen, you know, and it's, it's a pretty thinly veiled representation of Rome, but I think is a stand-in for all of human empire and effort. And instead, it's those who are willing to walk the road of the cross counterintuitively, going against what our instincts tell us, laying down our rights and our power, are the very ones who experience the resurrection life, and then the story ends back in the garden with the people of God and even the city. Jerusalem is now a city. Rather than being a place of corruption, it too is restored, and that then is our future. And so all of this, the hinge, is the resurrection. If you take the resurrection out, the story falls apart. You lose the arc of the story, and that's why it's so important that we proclaim it. And you know, despite all the theological arguments throughout the years, to me, the most fundamental thing that must be affirmed is the belief that Jesus did, in fact, bodily rise from the dead. And when that's front and center, 
then everything else can fall into place. You know, so if I'm going to talk to somebody about whatever it may be, if we can affirm Jesus rose from the dead, then that, that sets the conversation on a very different course than maybe somebody who is going to be wishy-washy about that, deny that, be ambivalent about that. Yeah, I think the steadfast belief in his bodily resurrection is a central aspect of the Christian faith. Yeah, and there are whole books out there on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, and I highly recommend studying it. It's actually a fascinating study, looking at the, the historical proofs that, uh, that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and the minimal facts approach, and all these different uh, extra-biblical sources that cite that something happened. There was something about an empty tomb and, that caused massive ripples in the, the, that part of the world, and then from that part of the world out to the entire Mediterranean basin. And so it's an interesting study, but a couple things to consider. Maybe you're listening to this and you're, you're uncertain of you know, where you stand on the historicity of the bodily resurrection from the dead. Um, just taking the, uh, a couple of the, the biblical references that Paul makes in one of his letters to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, and he claims that over 500 people had seen the resurrected Jesus. And this letter was in circulation, uh, you know, at the time that several, uh, he makes a claim that many of these people were still alive. And the easy debunking that would that could have taken place at such a claim, whereas if you compare it to other um, supposed eyewitness accounts and other religions, they are dependent upon one person. And so the idea here that the apostles and then Mary, the, the various Marys and the women who saw him after he was uh, resurrected there in the garden, like you said, Drew, and then this claim, this audacious claim that hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ and could have been cross-checked. Um, this could have been a very easily debunked myth right off the bat. Second point would be James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, you know, is is ambivalent at best about Jesus during his ministry, um, antagonistic at worst, and and there's no evidence that while Jesus was alive, James was um, at all uh, a supporter, let alone a follower of his, and yet we see this dramatic transformation, and then ends up penning the the epistle, the book of James and refers to, in verse 1, Jesus as Lord. And I, I think if there's any apologetic, I don't know what it would take for you to believe that your sibling is Yahweh, the the creator and sustainer of the universe, but for James to, to turn a corner and to become an ardent worshiper of his half-brother and follower um, is, is, to me, a dramatic—and, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the claim that Jesus had appeared to James specifically, seem, seemingly singling him out. And then the disciples themselves, you know, this historic pivot that they make from being uh, fearful, hiding deserters of Jesus to these fearless, vocal uh, proponents of the resurrection from the dead with nothing to gain from it materially and everything to lose. And, uh, and then there's all sorts of extra-biblical uh, sources that cite these events that were stirring Jerusalem at this time. And it's just a, I think every person has to grapple with the resurrection, at least the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. It's lazy, intellectually lazy to simply say, you know, it's a myth from 2,000 years ago without looking 
squarely at the evidence. And I think I shared this a couple of years ago in the episode we did on the resurrection, but uh, we had a gentleman in our church in Kansas who was an attorney, and he came to faith later in life, and I asked him, what, what eventually kind of won you over to the faith? And of course, his wife had been praying for him for many years, but he said as an attorney, when he finally actually looked at the evidence instead of just ignoring it as superstitious myth, but actually looked at it for himself, he said he had never tried a case with even a shred of the amount of evidence for the resurrection that he saw uh, when he actually did the research for himself. And that was one of the main points that that won him over to the faith. And so it's a, a, a powerfully compelling, not just claim, but claim with, with many historical buttresses supporting the claim and say it, it's worth digging into. It'll bolster your faith if you're already a believer. And I think every person who's wondering, um, searching, uh, it's a worthwhile endeavor. If anyone's looking for a resource on that, N.T. writes The Resurrection of the Son of God. I think it runs 850 pages, but is a thorough seminal work, at least in recent times, on that topic. I remember reading, um, there's an MIT physicist named Ian Hutchinson who wrote a book on miracles and, you know, basically do miracles exist uh, is kind of his core idea. And one of the questions he gets asked is, you know, why, what is it as this like brilliant scientist, what are the things that provoke him to to believe? And, you know, he gives he, he gives a very nuanced answer to that. But he said, if I had to pick one, it'd be the resurrection. Like that's the thing. And, and so I really do agree with your challenge there, Mick, of something for someone to dive into. Okay. So what are we claiming happened? That Jesus, both God and man, two natures in one person, died as an atoning sacrifice for our sin and then rose again, conquering sin, death, and hell through his bodily resurrection. And that is a foretaste for all those who believe of what our future will someday be. So the significance for the faith, hopefully that's obvious, but another element to this that I think is a a really cool feature, especially if you're somebody who likes to study theology, is the recognition that the foundation of the Christian faith is not an idea, but was an act. And I think that really shapes things. So the subsequent discussion on the nature of God, the Trinity, the nature of Christ, the nature of personhood, Christian anthropology, all these different things that have been a major theological and intellectual research agenda that have thousands of years and, and a very rich discussion that that in many aspects continue to shape the way that people see the world, both Christian and non-Christian, that flowed out of something that actually happened. So it was the act that gave rise to the thinking. And I think that's a unique fact of our faith, of um, what, what's not happening here is there wasn't a religious teacher that showed up and had this very deep insight into the human condition, and they talked about it. I mean, even if you look at Jesus's life, it was marked by miracles, and he did teach. He certainly taught, and his teaching definitely has incredible depth. I mean, these are the very words of God, but it was his act of rising from the dead that set everything else in motion. And the reason why Christians grappled with this understanding of a triune God directly came from the resurrection of Jesus, because then you have this dawning realization on this group of disciples that that the the Messiah, the one they followed, and you know, even in its context, I don't know that a Jewish person would have ever thought that the Messiah would be Yahweh himself in human flesh. That that was a new thought. You know, I, I think they probably considered the Messiah to be a Davidic type of ruler who was going to usher in a type of freedom and reestablishing Israel. Mark's gospel is cool about this. It, it, the first verse is the beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so remember, Christ is a title, it's Messiah. And it's the confession that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. 
And if you look at the structure of the book, the first half builds to the moment when Peter declares, you are the Christ. And he's, he's confessing that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. But then the second half of the book builds to the Roman centurion who confesses that surely he is the son of God. This man is the son of God. And so it's this awareness then that yes, he is the Messiah in the sense that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel and is in the line of David establishing the kingship, but also Jesus is Israel's God. You just think like that completely transforms even our understanding of who God is, because now we're forced to grapple with how does a transcendent God who fashioned the world into existence, and you know, you kind of get into all these attributes of who God is, of omnipresent, omnipotent, all these other elements and attributes, how on earth is that God able to become a person? Then we get into this monotheistic belief that God is one. And by that, what we mean is that God is one substance, that there is no division within God. And at the same time, God is manifest in three persons. And so that's where I've actually been reading lately a few of the, the thinkers on this. Boethius, who came along um, a couple centuries after the Nicene-Constantinople Creed was formulated, and he articulates this later, Richard of St. Victor, other scholastic theologians. But they're, they're taking this, they're saying, how do we make sense of this? And it's even from these conversations that the notion of personhood is developed in a way that was different from the world around it. And they're, they're what they're forced to do, um, you know, Mick, you talked about Gnostic thought. Um, what's happening is there's these Greek concepts that existed in the world and Latin concepts that existed in the world, but these languages don't even have the vocabulary to describe what we're talking about here. So these Christian theologians, what, what they had to do is they had to take these existing words and concepts to give them new meaning for the very first time. So even this concept of person, first and foremost, was to describe who is God, how is God revealed in three persons, and how is that different than you and I make of human persons, but we're not one. We're, we're not unified. We're not of the same substance. So how on earth do we make sense of a God who is? And, and all this rich conversation of the Trinity, which on the one hand, you can look at that. I know some people... Some people can be derisive of that whole conversation as kind of this overly intellectual attitude towards the faith. I personally disagree with that, though. I think definitely can go there where it just becomes us trying to intellectually make sense of God. But I think there's a very beautiful aspect of this that is reflection upon who God has revealed himself to be. And as long as we get the order right, it's really powerful. It's because God acted in a way that I didn't expect, because God broke into my world, and my brain can't even compute what God just did. And if he hadn't have done it, we wouldn't be talking about it. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, none of all that conversation would have ever been necessary. But it happened. And it happened, and then that forced us to go along and say, okay, what else have we missed? And through that, then we develop all these concepts, and including what we talk about when we even use the word person directly came from those conversations and the range of ideas that sit behind that word of somebody who has dignity and is a being capable of relationship, who has a substance, you know, all these different things that in modern human rights or understanding of law, we take for granted. And of course, there was a concept for human beings that, that goes, you know, I'm sure to the time the first humans walked the earth, but the modern notion that we take for granted today, even in secular society, directly came from reflection on the Trinity, which directly came from the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If he had not risen from the dead, none of the other stuff would have been needed. And I just think it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable the ramification of what happened when Jesus stepped out of that tomb and the way that it changed everything. And I think it's a good reminder um, for those of us engaged in any type of 
theological task is the task should be different if Jesus rose from the dead. We're not talking about mere human reflections on the divine or the best sense of humanity's religious self-understanding. Instead, what we're talking about is a reaction to how God has revealed himself. In theological terms, this is often referred to as the economic trinity. And economic, not in a financial sense, but going back into the original Greek usage of that word, it's the way that God has interacted with the world, revealed himself to the world. In other words, our knowledge of God is directly derived from how God has revealed himself to us. And to me, there's a real humility there. And I, I think there is a place for the rigors of the intellectual life of making sense of that, but it's always in the humility of recognizing that that's only made possible because of God's self-revelation to us. And first and foremost, that is in the act of Jesus stepping out of the tomb is how that is made possible. Yeah, and so I think, Drew, when you set up the outline, uh, you mentioned three points, and and the third is, you know, what does this mean for us today? And the implications are far-reaching, but I was thinking about specifically in the run-up to Easter this coming Sunday, which, of course, this is being released after uh, Easter, but was talking with uh, a couple of our pastors this morning about Luke 24, and we were just running the thought experiment of you know being Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus and Jesus you know walking alongside us for up to seven miles, a couple hours, two, three hour conversation. And Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, expounding the scriptures, beginning with the writings of Moses and identifying who he is in the scriptures, what the scriptures have to say about him. And still, and we said, this this should be an encouragement to any preacher on the planet that these two individuals walked with Jesus. It was the best sermon that has ever been delivered, and they still didn't recognize him until you know they uh, got to Emmaus. They invited him into the home. He came in, they sat down, they shared a meal, he broke bread, and it says, then their eyes were opened. And I think the, you know, there's so much we could say about this, but the the resurrected Jesus expounded the scriptures, they heard the word, their hearts were burning within them as they heard it, but it wasn't until the breaking of bread, and again, it's this idea of, you know, the, the bread and the wine being this sacramental reality, the the embodied Christ, the incarnation as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to break this bread as a remembrance of the sacrifice and to proclaim his uh, death until he comes again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And it was the embodied Jesus breaking the bread, which is a symbol of his embodiment. That was what was open. That That is what opened their eyes. And I, I think for us that we run the risk in this information rich age that we can lull ourselves to sleep through all of the podcasts. And we do, I do two podcasts and I'm a preacher and I create content and I think that's important and it has its place. But at the end of the day, if we are dependent upon content, listening to other people for our own uh, spiritual world, then we run the risk of being like the disciples, still unable to recognize the resurrected Christ walking with them, even though their hearts are burning. It was a great message. But until he was invited into their home and they communed with him in a in a real way, broke the bread, and they saw him. And so I I think a point of reflection for us is, you know, how much of our spiritual life is dependent upon someone else's revelation and how much is our own 
the spiritual world shaped by our, our, our own communion with the living God. And the only re- way that that's possible is if Jesus rose from the dead, ascended, uh, sent the Spirit as a, as a down payment of the coming resurrection and the consummation uh, where we will see him face to face. I love that, Mick. And yeah, I mean, I think building on that, that revelation, also the awareness that God breaks into our world in unexpected ways. And when I think of his disciples, even the despair they would have felt on Good Friday and um, Holy Saturday or Black Saturday, you know, just the painful reality of death and loss, and then suddenly to be confronted with the resurrection of new life. I think that's an important revelation in our faith is that we're not claiming we avoid death, but we are claiming that death has been conquered. And that is our great hope. And when that is front and center in our mind, that our future is this embodied existence with God forever, free from the corrupting power of sin, death, and hell, when that is what we celebrate and proclaim, that we get to be fully united with him, that original intention with God, that humanity and God fully join together in union and with each other as a result. You know, when, when that's our great hope, it puts all of life back into perspective. And even for the problems we face, it gives us faith both to endure them and also to overcome them um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so I think it's, I very much believe that the centrality of the resurrection is important for us as believers. You know, I'd say for those, um, especially in Protestant traditions and, and maybe Catholic too, actually, what our, our temptation can be is that we can so focus on the events of Good Friday and yes and amen, you know, the atoning sacrifice of Christ to set us free from our sin, the provision of Jesus in giving his body and his blood to us, uh, and, and also a very central part of our faith, but that we can forget about the resurrection and what we proclaim with the resurrection, and that's where our great hope can be found is in Jesus conquering the grave. Um, also, that story from Emmaus is is a great reminder to us. We have a guest that'll hop on um, for a future episode that's done a lot of work in, in some of those stories of, of how do we understand and see God that I'm excited to share. So stay tuned for that. But it is a great reminder for us of the awareness of God's presence in our life, even where we don't always see him. So we'll conclude with that. And it's my prayer as we leave that each one of us has a fresh revelation of the resurrection power of Jesus. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week back here on Ideology.